Influencing popular culture, politics, and everything in between. The local station takes you ringside as we discuss the crazy world that is professional wrestling. This is Going Ringside with The Local Station. Hello there, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Going Ringside with The Local Station. I'm Scott Johnson. So glad you could join us today. Uh, the show continues to grow. As always, please help get the word out. We're available on uh, iTunes, Spotify, News for Jack's YouTube channel, wherever you find your podcasts. If you're in a wrestling internet social media group, spread the word about the show there. We want to get it uh, out there, and we think the show is doing a pretty good job, and we're glad you could join us today. Um, so I want to talk to you about what we have on plate today. The, this is probably my favorite wrestling topic of all time, and that would be the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin and how he went from a, uh, a relative mid-card guy in WCW and became probably the most popular wrestler in history on the planet. Um, we'll talk about that and real quickly before we get on to Austin. At the end of this episode, if you're interested, we are going to be talking to some independent wrestlers who are promoting something called Toontown Turmoil here in Jacksonville on April 16th. That'll be over near TIA Bank Field, not far from there in the Talleyrand area, at an event called Bold City Con. We will hear from a tag team who will be wrestling in the event on April 16th. Coming up a little later in the podcast, scroll ahead if you want to hear all about it. But here's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, arguably the most popular wrestler while he was an active wrestler of all time. He may not be considered the greatest. He may not be considered the most successful. You've got guys like Dwayne Johnson starring in movies. But as far as while he was an active performer, an active wrestler in WWF in the late 90s, early 2000s, Austin was as big as anyone in history, maybe the biggest. And I want to go over a few because if you disagree with that, I want to hear in the comments. Go to our News for Jack's YouTube link on this or uh, find us on... Um, wherever, newsforjacks.com, under this article. If you want to comment and disagree with me, you're welcome to. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll, I'll read them on an upcoming episode if you do disagree with me on this. But my argument is Austin is the biggest, most over guy of all time. And I want to go over, before we talk about the rise of Austin and what he did in the 90s, I want to talk a little about some of the guys you might think, well, what about this guy? Let's start with The Rock. So The Rock and Austin were essentially contemporaries in the Attitude Era. The Rock and Austin were both incredible incredibly, ridiculously popular. They were essentially one in 1A of the Attitude Era. Who was more popular? Well, they were both incredibly over with the fan base. Austin had some success in the movies. Rock obviously went on to become the biggest movie star on earth. But as far as while they were in wrestling, I rank Austin above Rock and here's why. Austin essentially built it in the Attitude Era. Rock came in and gained popularity about a year to a year and a half after Austin when the Attitude Era had essentially taken WWF to the next level to become this incredibly over mainstream thing, edgy with adult audiences. Rock came in and it was just as popular, but Austin built it. Austin was the brand everything was built around. So that's why I put Rock or Austin just a hair above Rock as far as popularity while they were active wrestlers. So you have guys who came later, Cena, CM Punk, guys like that, Brock Lesnar to an extent, Roman Reigns, very incredible, great, incredible talents. The main guys in the company, the driving force in the company, but they weren't Austin. 
they did not have the excitement that Stone Cold Steve Austin brought to the fan base that drove TV ratings, that drove ad revenue, that drove all that stuff. People uh, wanted to see Austin. Couple others, you've got The Undertaker. Undertaker had an incredible run, 30 years at the top as a, as a headline performer, main eventing, had a streak at WrestleMania. Taker was amazing. Taker could be considered by some the greatest of all time. But as far as sheer popularity and excitement, Austin takes the cake there. Um, you've got, who else? Ric Flair. Ric Flair, the main guy in WCW, NWA in the 80s, but it was still kind of the secondary wrestling company. He was a 16-time champion. He was great. People love Flair. He's a, a tremendous performer. But even Ric Flair in a speech and Vince McMahon have both said as good as he was, as good as others were, Austin was the greatest of all time. Uh, Ultimate Warrior, considerably over with the fans, but he wasn't Austin's level. He didn't have the mainstream crossover Austin did. Same with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. They were the main guys in the mid-90s. They were incredible talents, incredible performers, had some crossover success. Uh, Bret Hart did more than Shawn Michaels, but they didn't have what Austin did. They didn't drive revenue and drive ratings and grow to a new audience like Steve Austin did. But there's one guy I haven't mentioned, Hulk Hogan. I don't know that we can ever answer who was more popular in the history of wrestling, Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin. What Hulk Hogan did in the 1980s, becoming a superhero to millions of American children and really taking wrestling out of the shadows into this mainstream big budget product where the whole company was built around him for the vast majority of the 1980s, that can't be understated. The same thing happened with Austin. He took a struggling WWF and made it this global juggernaut based on the Attitude Era and built around Steve Austin. They had different fan bases. Hogan was more targeted toward children. Kayfabe was a big thing back then. When Austin, it became a little more realism-based. And Austin essentially was targeting that young male demographic that advertisers like a lot more than children. And they love Steve Austin. I want to tell you a story uh, before we get into Austin's rise that I really think sums up Steve Austin and his popularity. I was living in the Northwest when Steve Austin was uh, coming up and becoming this global brand. And I remember this guy that I spotted in my town that I lived in, just a guy driving a cheap clunker of a car around the city. But he changed his look just in his life. I would see him driving down the streets a lot, shaved his head, wore a goatee, and painted his old clunker of a car all black with Austin 316 all over it. You might laugh, you might think that's awkward or weird, that's fine. But to think that a professional wrestler influenced a random guy to paint his car and change his whole image in life, not to dress up like Ric Flair or Randy Savage on Halloween, not to wear the gear that they sell at the events or dress up if you go to a wrestling match, but literally in his day-to-day -day life to dress like Steve Austin and paint his car with Austin 316, that you could be a professional wrestler and influence a random guy that much shows you how over Steve Austin was. But let's talk about how he started here. So Steve Austin was born Steve Anderson. Steve Austin is now his legal name. He's since changed it, but he was born Steve Anderson. He eventually changed his name to Steve Williams when he was young and his mom got married. 
So he was Steve Williams, and he paid a guy some money in the late 80s to teach him how to wrestle, and he was living in Texas. He'd had some athletic success. He played football. And Austin got his start, and he even had an article where he said that the first guy who taught him wrestling didn't teach him, didn't smarten him up, so to speak. He didn't, he taught him the wrestling holds, but didn't teach him the rest of it. Like, you're eventually supposed to lay down and let the other guy win, or the other guy's supposed to lay down and let you pin him. He didn't teach him that wrestling was a work, that wrestling was a scripted event. He eventually figured that out as time went by. And so he's in the 80s, and eventually Austin did have some success very early in his career, because in the early 90s, he's hired by WCW. And they had to change his name because you had Dr. Death Steve Williams, a very popular wrestler around the country and the globe. You couldn't have another Steve Williams, so they had him change his name to Steve Austin. And Austin comes into WCW, and I always liken him, <clears throat> if you remember, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Kind of seemed like a similar gimmick to me. A good, muscular, well-built, athletic guy, and he wore a long robe and he changed his name to Stunning Steve, and he had bleach blonde hair, and he kind of came down with, I'm this athletic great specimen, and I'm better than you. I, and they marketed him as being from Southern California, even though he, he was from Texas in real life. And he came in <clears throat> into WCW and had a lot of success, had a lot of big matches. Um, he feuded with, WCW was different back then. It was before Hogan showed up. It was before the NWO. They were struggling as a business. Ticket sales were down, uh, ratings were down, and Ted Turner had only really started to take over. But they had a great product for wrestling fans. People liked it. You had Sting, the Steiner brothers, um, Luger had, was about to leave, but you had Luger, you had Big Van Vader, and you had other guys that, who were kind of come over from WWF with success, ravaging Rick Rude, Jake the Snake Roberts, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And that's who Austin really came in, a very um, athletically gifted group, very uh, less cartoonish to a point. I mean, they did have Kevin Ash dress up and call himself Oz, so there was some corniness back then. <clears throat> but they did have some legit good performers, good wrestlers. And that's who Austin was really in. He was portrayed, I would say, he was one of the top five heels in the company at that point with Flair, Vader, guys like that, Rick Rude. <clears throat> and he had some good feuds. He feuded with Dustin Rhodes, who eventually years later would move to WWF and become Goldust. He had some great matches with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Steamboat is considered one of the greatest performers in wrestling history as far as just athleticism. And he had some great feuds with Steamboat. He, he, uh, Austin won some titles. He became US champ and he, he did well there. And eventually, um, he started a tag team with Brian Pillman, fl flying Brian Pillman, you might remember. They became the Hollywood Blondes, and they were, so, they were a good tag team, strong tag team. Eventually, they split up and went their separate ways, and they feuded for a while. And this was kind of Austin's run in WCW, and he was a pretty strong performer. I remember stunning Steve at the time. He had, I think, his girlfriend at the time, and she was his valet to the ring, and he just had a lot of success um, and really solidified himself as a strong performer, a strong upper mid-card wrestler in WCW um, for those, you know, 91 through 93 era. But something changed in 1994 because, as I said, they were struggling as a business. Ratings were down, money was down, they were 
they were trying to make ends meet, and Ted Turner had now taken over. Ted Turner with his hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars at this point. He hires Eric Bischoff to come in and turn the company around and help have it start make a profit. And Bischoff does something well before the Monday Night Wars started, well before the NWO showed up. He did something that was major, that really made WCW go from being this, this smaller, second-tier territory to a major player. He hired Hulk Hogan. And a lot of people criticize Hulk Hogan. They don't like Hulk Hogan. They talk about he got a guaranteed contract. He got creative control when he came into WCW. I don't fault them for hiring Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan was the biggest name on the planet in 1994. He had been out of wrestling, and he had been acting and trying to start an acting career. So to hire Hulk Hogan was a big get for your company, which is financially struggling, to bring in the main guy. But when you bring in Hulk Hogan, you bring in all his buddies, you, either people that you assume are his buddies because they're on camera a lot together, or they're personal friends of his. They bring in Brutus Beefcake, his best friend. They bring in Mean Gene and Bobby Heenan. They bring in the macho man Randy Savage. And they bring in other guys, because when you book Hulk Hogan as a wrestler, you got to book the types of guys that fans are accustomed to him fighting. Hulk Hogan doesn't fight your ravaging Rick Rudes. He fights larger-than-life monsters. So they start building this thing called the Dungeon of Doom, which a lot of people look back on and make fun of. It had guys like Earthquake, who changed his name to The Shark. Um, it had one-man gang, Kamala. <clears throat> guys like that. And they came in, and they were these large monsters, and they would feud with Hulk Hogan. And I think I read at some point Austin wanted to see if he could maybe have a feud with Hogan. But the problem was, was Austin didn't fit the bill for the types of guys they had Hogan feud with. That didn't really fit for a Hulk Hogan nemesis. So there wasn't really a place for Steve Austin. I mean, he'd had that upper bid card run before Hogan got there. There wasn't really room for Steve Austin, so they start having him feud with one of Hogan's buddies, who they brought in, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Hacksaw Jim Duggan was kind of cartoonish, corny, with his two-by-four and his ho, and he feuded with Duggan, and he lost a lot to Duggan. And around this time, Austin is injured. He has a legit injury, and he has to go home and recover for a while. And this is something that's famous and has been talked about for... 30 years ever since, Eric Bischoff called him up at home or sent him a letter. I don't know the details, but it's been talked about. You can look around and find out about how it happened. But Eric Bischoff called and gave Austin notice, you're fired. We don't need you anymore in WCW. We have Hulk Hogan now. We've got all these other guys. And Austin was not brought back to WCW. Bischoff has long answered questions for decades about this. How do you fire the guy who went on to become the most recognizable guy on the planet, the most recognizable franchise wrestler on the planet. Well, he did. So Austin needs to make a living, and he's injured, so he had had some interaction and worked with Paul Heyman back in WCW. He's part of Heyman's Dangerous Alliance. At this point, Heyman had left WCW and started his own company, Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECW, based in Philadelphia. ECW was the underground alternative wrestling company to WCW and WWF. It was hardcore. It was shot in a bingo hall famously with a lot of blood and dangerous matches, guys doing just some crazy stuff. It was really like this underground cult following they had. 
And I was growing up as a teenager at the time, and I didn't get ECW on my cable system, and we didn't have internet. Internet didn't really exist then. So I didn't know a lot about ECW. But Heyman called Austin at home and said, why don't you come work for me? But Austin was still injured. He couldn't actively be a wrestler. So he said, why don't you do a lot of mic work for me? Do a lot of on-camera work where you're not actively wrestling. So he goes to ECW. He goes to Philadelphia. And this is where they say Austin really learned to cut a promo, to talk on camera, to develop his stone-cold character in its infancy in ECW. If you go to YouTube, you'll find old interviews with Austin dressing up as Hulk Hogan and mocking him, mocking Eric Bischoff, and it's just good stuff. And if you look at it, knowing this is years before he would become Stone Cold, he, you can see he's got something. This guy has the ability to talk on camera like very few guys in pro wrestling. And so he really really learns the craft of talking on camera and cutting a promo and developing a personality in ECW. And in late 1995, Austin gets the call from Vince and WWF, which is essentially still as good as WCW was, going to WWF was still the upper echelon. You've made it if you've gone to WWF. <clears throat> and they bring him in and he's hired as the ringmaster. He gets rid of the long blonde hair, shaves it kind of like mine. He had a little stubble there. He didn't go fully bicking the head just yet. But he comes in as, a, he's called the ringmaster. And as good as he got at talking in ECW, WWF didn't care. They gave him a manager. They gave him the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Ted had stopped actively wrestling at this point and he started managing. And so, DiBiase was essentially his mouthpiece, and they brought him as the ringmaster, um, which was essentially, he was like this technical wrestling gifted guy at pro wrestling. And Austin was a great technical wrestler. He knew all the moves, could do all the holds. He was kind of like an alternative to maybe Bret Hart at this point. And he comes in, and he's the ringmaster, and he's, a, he's brought in on a mid-card status, and Austin... Um, is given the million dollar belt. If you grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, you might remember DiBiase made this million dollar belt. And I remember as a kid thinking that was the most valuable thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was gold dollar signs with, they said was real diamonds right in the middle. And I'm thinking, wow, that has to be worth millions and millions of dollars. And he made uh, Austin his million dollar champion. And so he's the, he's the ringmaster, he's the million dollar champion, and he's in feuds. And I read this recently. I didn't know about this. Um, Austin made a mistake early in his time in um, WWF. He was booked in the Royal Rumble a few months after he showed up. Royal Rumble, if you know, is 30 men, and they come in one at a time every two minutes. And it really is to set up WrestleMania. Usually the person who wins is booked to win the Royal Rumble, goes on to main event WrestleMania. That hadn't really been solidified at that, this point, but it was getting there. And usually if you won... That was a big feather in your cap. And Austin was booked to be one of the final four guys in the Rumble that year. And that's a big thing for a guy who really only in the company about two months at this point, to be booked as one of the final four in the Royal Rumble. That's a big deal to have that. Um, it was a big feather in Austin's cap. And so Austin is booked to be a final four guy, but he screws up. So Fatu who you eventually knew as Rikishi, 
He started with the Samoans, and then he, he developed this gimmick called Fatu, and he was positive for the kids in the inner city, and he was like this positive, he was almost like, a, if you remember the old Dare, the Dare program, he seemed like a, the Dare program in a professional wrestler. He was positive and trying to teach kids to do the right thing, and that was his gimmick at the time. And he goes and he clotheslines Austin over the top rope toward the end of Royal Rumble. Austin says he was supposed to hang on the top rope and not let his feet touch the ground so he wasn't eliminated. So I went back and this week and watched Royal Rumble 95 and it was really hard to see because the camera didn't really pick it up that Austin didn't hold on to the rope. He fell and was eliminated and he was hit hard by uh, Fatu and it was really hard for Austin to you know, remain his balance and I don't blame him for falling out of the ring. But it, it was screwed up. He screwed up the booking for the match. He was supposed to be one of the final four. And if you look closely, if you go back and watch it on Peacock, you can see him uh, frustrated uh, because he knew he screwed up. He's a new guy in the WWF at this point, and he just made a mistake. And he, I guess he said he went to try to whisper to Shawn Michaels, I screwed up, I got eliminated. And the guys had to just kind of improvise the end of the match. So Austin not being there, the fans couldn't tell that there was a mistake. So he was really worried about that. Um, that he had made that mistake, um, but he recovered and he, he went on to have a lot of matches. He really feuded with Savio Vega. Savio Vega was uh, a well-respected performer at the time. He was a mid-card, good worker, good hand as they call it. Not really a hugely over wrestler, but he was a good worker and he was a good guy to feud with Austin. And they feuded all the way through WrestleMania and had a lot of good matches, Austin and Savio Vega. And that's kind of where he's at. He's upper mid-card at this point. Another guy who had showed up at this point, right around the same time as Austin, was getting a push, but just a bit further. He was doing a little better than Austin and getting his push with the company was Triple H, Hunter Hearst Elmsley. So Triple H is supposed to get a big push because King of the Ring is coming up in June of 96. And he, they say, was supposed to be booked to win King of the Ring. If you win King of the Ring, you're kind of a made man, so to speak, in WWF. That shows you're going to get a big push. You're going to become a main guy in the company. But something happened. Because if you followed wrestling at this time, you maybe heard about The Click. The Click was an unofficial group, not really on camera, of guys with their leader, Shawn Michaels, who was the main, becoming the main guy in the company at this point. Another guy, Kevin Nash or Diesel. Razor Ramon, Scott Hall was in it, and Triple H. And to an extent, um, 123 Kid, who eventually became Xbox, Sean Waltman. They were the clique. They were kind of backstage and they kind of ran things, so to speak, unofficially. They had a lot of power and influence of Vince McMahon, and usually whatever they wanted, they got. But famously, in the spring of 1996, Hall and Nash quit and leave the company and jump ship to WCW for a lot of money and they start the NWO. There was a lot of uh, backstage unhappiness from Vince McMahon at this point, obviously, because he just lost two of his biggest performers in Hall and Nash. And they did something at a house show that wasn't on TV that's famously called the curtain call. So when Nash and Hall, they know are leaving, um, they know that they're in real life, they're friends with Shawn Michaels and Triple H, Paul Levesque, they do what's called the curtain call after a show where at the end of the match, 
they break kayfabe, they break the unwritten rule of enemies aren't really friends in real life. And they all came out to the ring and they, and they hugged one another, breaking kayfabe, breaking the, um, the, the fourth wall with the fans that they were really feuding and enemies. They were actually good buddies and they all hugged. And they weren't supposed to do this and WWF management was not happy about it. They were really unhappy. But the problem for WWF management at this point was, well, you can't punish Hall and Nash. They just quit. They don't work there anymore. You can't punish Shawn Michaels. He's the main guy in your company. You've got to keep him happy. So who took the brunt of the punishment? It was Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Triple H was still a mid-carter at this point, about to get his push, but he got his punishment. And the punishment famously, they say, was he was no longer going to become king of the ring. They changed the plan and say, Hunter, you got to wait a while. Yeah, this is your penance for being a part of that curtain call, which uh, was a no-no in wrestling. And the guy who gets the call is Steve Austin. And this is about when things change. Uh, to my director, we're about to roll a clip in just a few minutes. I'll call for it. So Steve Austin goes on to win King of the Ring, the tournament uh, where the, I think it's an eight-man tournament, maybe 16, and it's kind of like an elimination tournament. And in the finals, he goes against Jake the Snake Roberts. Jake the Snake Roberts at this point, um, Jake Roberts is famously had drug and alcohol issues, very publicly um, in his personal life. And his gimmick at this point was he was a born-again Christian. I think that was part of his real life at this point. Um, but he was very overt with his Christianity and his gimmick. And he loses to Steve Austin in the finals. And Steve Austin goes up and essentially off the cuff does an interview after winning King of the Ring. And this is the interview that people point back to decades later and say is the interview that essentially changed Steve Austin's career when Austin 316 was born. Go ahead and roll the clip. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Come on, that's not necessary. If you're a wrestling fan, I'm sure you've seen that uh, clip a time or two. It has been shared for decades. That is the moment that many point to and say the Attitude Era of WWF began. The ascent of Stone Cold Steve Austin started. And that was essentially shocked the world when he did that. He was this mid-carter, and this is when fans were hungering for something a little more adult. The NWO had started on the other channel, and Austin goes out and does the Austin 316 promo. He said he got the idea from seeing all those John 316 signs, which is probably one of the most famous Bible verses ever at a lot of NFL games for years, and he thought, maybe I could do this Austin 316 thing. And so he does that. And a lot of people who were WWF at that point said they started immediately seeing Austin 316 signs in the stands. And that's how they judged something was happening. And I didn't make the connection of what had gone on because I would watch some of the shows after that King of the Ring and I didn't see those signs 
on the old shows, but I've heard some people say that a lot of the shows after King of the Ring had been pre-taped, so the ones with the Austin 316 signs didn't show up till months later because they taped a lot of their shows at that point. But the WWE officials who pay attention to crowd reaction, sometimes Vince or guys like Bruce Pritchard or Pat Patterson would famously say they would just sit in the stands and watch a show because they wanted to see how the fans were reacting. And quickly the fans started reacting to Steve Austin. They wanted something different. They knew kayfabe was dying and they wanted something a little more real. And when Steve Austin went in and said this Austin 316 promo, it started to change things for Steve. And around this time, he changes his gimmick. They get rid of Ted DiBiase, a little before that promo, I think. And Ted DiBiase is no longer his manager. Austin is on his own. And Steve Austin goes on to start to change his gimmick and be a real hardcore heel, a real hardcore bad guy, who starts saying some words that probably weren't allowed on WWF television in years prior. And eventually, he, as time went by, starts drinking beer. Eventually, as time goes by, he starts raising his middle finger. And fans really start responding to Steve Austin in the months following this. So after this, Austin continues to go through that summer. And by fall of 96, when he's really starting to take off as a main heel in this company, when you've got guys like Vader still around, they're looking for main heels, um, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart are your main guys, Sid Vicious, Psycho Sid comes around, these are kind of your main guys. Austin, by the fall, starts antagonizing Bret Hart. Bret Hart is your babyface good guy who's been your good guy for a few years at this point. And he starts antagonizing and needling Bret Hart in a lot of promos. Some very uh, choice words, so to speak, Austin did. And then Austin gets in a feud that was kind of famous, that WWF went a little overboard and got in some trouble. He starts feuding with Brian Pillman, who he had been um, Pillman's um, partner in WCW. Pillman was now brought into WWF as what was called the Loose Cannon. He would just go out and say just crazy stuff on camera, kind of almost scary, almost psycho, is how he kind of portrayed himself. Well, he started a feud with Steve Austin, and they decided it, they were doing a little more crash, uh, reality television-based programming, and they did a feud with, that's called Pillman's Got a Gun, where Pillman, they had an interview with Pillman and his wife at Pillman's home, his real-life home, and Vince McMahon, I think, was doing the interview from the, from the wrestling match, and Pillman was in his house talking about his feud with Austin. And then you start hearing pounding at Pillman's house, and Austin is there. And Austin's going to break through the door. And Austin's going to get him. And Pillman pulls a gun. And they say, Pillman's got a gun, and the, and the screen cuts to black, and you hear a gunshot, and you never know what it is. So this is like, whoa. This is no longer using a, a, a steel chair on a guy. They brought a gun into wrestling. This is probably a little too far. They eventually said no one was hurt. And eventually, I think Vince McMahon had to apologize for that angle because USA Network, who was, uh, had the programming in WWF, was not happy with the WWF for doing an angle where you actually had a weapon, a, a gun. 
that was that caused a lot of problems. Um, but eventually, Austin survived, and he kept going. And then by the early uh, 1997, Austin is really booked in a feud with Bret Hart. Bret Hart is the main guy at this point, and Austin is becoming quickly his main antagonist. And they're kind of, as I said, they're good foils for one another. They're both good, technically sound wrestlers. But the fans are starting to get a little tired of Bret Hart at this point. Bret is kind of doing some promos that are kind of whiny. Like, I want respect. You should respect me, things of that. And fans are kind of getting tired of it. And they're really liking this Steve Austin guy. And so they have an I Quit match at WrestleMania 13 in the spring of uh, 97. And this is essentially when something that's really unusual in WWF and wrestling history happens. They had what was called a double turn, not a babyface going heel or a heel becoming a babyface. The heel became the babyface. The babyface became the heel. They had a wrestling match, an I Quit match, and it is very famous. It's one of those other famous images of Austin where Brett wins the match, um, but Austin won't quit. Brett puts... Uh, Austin in the sharpshooter, which is patented move, one of the most devastating finishers of all time that makes you submit because it's so painful. It's kind of an inverted Boston crab. Sting does the same thing. He called it the scorpion deathlock. He, uh, and he has Austin in it. And Austin is bloody all over his face. And there is the image that has been shown for years of Austin screaming in agony with his face covered in blood but he would not give up. He would not submit despite the agonizing pain he was in. And eventually Brett won because Austin passed out from the pain. And that is how it happened. Austin booked himself as so tough, even when he was in that horrifying move, he would not give up. He would rather pass out from the pain than give up. And people start booing Brett during this. So you have this double turn at WrestleMania. It was incredible. Austin comes in following Raw's, and he essentially described it as, I would keep beating you, Brett, but my heart was pumping out more, or my head was pumping out more uh, blood than my heart could pump out, so I eventually passed out from blood loss. And that really solidified Steve Austin as this tough-as-nails guy who does what he says and won't give up for anyone. And he's really ratcheting up with the Stone Cold character. At this point, he's become Stone Cold Steve Austin. He dropped that ringmaster gimmick, and he was Stone Cold, and he was cussing, throwing up the middle finger, and doing something that that young male audience couldn't get enough of. Austin was a made man at this point. Austin was the main guy in the company. Now, granted, you have another main guy at the company who's kind of doing a similar thing and being just as equally exciting, and that's Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels is the other main guy at this point. So following at WrestleMania, he starts his feud with the Hearts. Bret Hart starts a heel faction called the Hart, essentially with a Hart family, with Owen, uh, Davey Boy Smith, his brother-in-law, Jim Neidhart, his other brother-in-law, and um, uh, Brian Pillman, who's a close family close to the Hart family, and they become this, like, Canadian heel stable. 
and they really start a lot of feuds between America and Canada. In fact, uh, even as bad as he was when they went into Canada, they w the Canadians would boo Austin and Michaels and cheer on Brett because he was still a, a national hero. But that really goes on throughout the summer, and Austin is teamed with Michaels, and people are just, Austin is taking off. He is, he's not to the level yet of becoming this mainstream crossover guy like Hulk Hogan was in the 80s, but he's not far behind. I would put him more maybe in the, in the realm of the Ultimate Warrior or John Cena early on. He's not really gone mainstream yet, but he's getting there. He's the most popular guy in the company. And eventually, something happens with Steve. At SummerSlam 1996, finishing off this feud with the Hearts, he's in a match with Owen Hart. Owen Hart had passed away a few years later in a tragedy. Um, Owen Hart gives Steve a pile driver. And essentially, he screwed it up and essentially breaks Steve's neck or gives him a very bad stinger that was very close to a broken neck. And that changed Steve's career long term. And Steve is out of action. He said he, he had to barely crawl. If you go back and watch the end of that match at SummerSlam 96, you see Steve essentially with a broken neck there crawl over and just do this very fake-looking roll-up of Owen just to finish the match. And Steve, you know, thought he, he could very well never work again, never wrestle again at this point. They weren't quite sure. But at this point, he's also maybe the most popular guy in your company. So Steve has this happen and he crawls and then they have to take him away from actively wrestling because he's legit hurt, but they don't want to get him off TV. September 22nd is when the beginning of Austin being the big guy in your company to becoming a transcendent figure that the entire globe is talking about and the nation wants on their TV shows happens. On the September 22nd of Monday Night Raw, 1997, Vince McMahon, who has not really taken on the character of the evil owner yet, he's still essentially an announcer. It's early internet. People know he's the owner, but people don't really hate him yet. It was a few months before the Montreal screw job with Bret Hart. Goes in the ring and tells Steve, you can't perform. You can't wrestle. We can't. It's for the safety of the company. And Austin, in his character, says, you can't tell me what I can't do. And he gives Vince McMahon, the owner of the company, a Stone Cold Stunner. And the fans go ballistic. And that was the early beginning of the Austin McMahon feud. The Austin McMahon feud, which is the feud that took Stone Cold from being the top guy in your company to a megastar, to the biggest star in the industry, the biggest star maybe the industry ever saw. Austin was everywhere at this point. And so Austin, all through this time, he's, do, he's everywhere. They can't have him on TV very enough. And Steve, physically, as a person, was injured. That neck injury from Owen Hart was very real. And Steve eventually was able to come back, but he had to change his match style. No longer was he that technical master. He had to become a brawler so he wouldn't hurt his neck, which is why he started doing things like the Luthez press and just kicking guys in the corner. And uh, Jim Ross would say, he's going to stomp a mud hole in him. Um, it's why he had to change his style to just a brawler, which so he wouldn't hurt his neck anymore. And then 
maybe one of the biggest angles we've ever seen. I would say maybe the second biggest WWF angle short of the rock and wrestling connection with in 83-84 with Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, and Cindy Lauper. Austin is becoming by far the most popular guy in the company. Shawn Michaels had been the most popular guy. But Shawn Michaels had joined Degeneration X and they were turning heel. They were becoming bad guys. And they eventually set up WrestleMania 98 with Steve Austin versus Shawn Michaels with your special guest referee, Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet. And they had Steve Austin have a contract signing. And this is where Eric Bischoff says he'd never really been worried about Austin and WWF until the moment they brought in Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was a major celebrity. Mike Tyson met major eyeballs on WrestleMania. So they have their, their match signing with Sean and Steve, and Steve gets in Tyson's face in one of the most famous things ever. You can look it up. You know where to find it. And he says, I know, I know Mike, your hearing's not too good, but uh, if you don't understand what I'm saying, here's two words for it. And he, gives him, he flips him the double bird. And that starts a shoving match between Austin and Tyson. And Jim Ross is famously there saying, Tyson and Austin, Tyson and Austin. And Vince is like losing it as the owner, like, you ruined it. He's getting in Austin's face. You ruined our big moment. And the fans were just going ballistic for Austin. And, and it was incredible. And this, set, this had Austin on ESPN. It had Austin on mainstream news programs. It had Austin in newspapers. It had Austin in the early formation of the internet. Austin was everywhere when he faced off with Mike Tyson. You had the most popular guy ever in your company giving, flipping off Mike Tyson in the middle of the ring. It was huge money. It was huge deal for WWF. Austin goes on. Um, Mike Tyson famously turns on Shawn Michaels, pretending he'd been with DX, and then turns on him and joins Steve at the end of WrestleMania that year. And in the Austin era had begun at that point. Shawn Michaels went away because Shawn Michaels was dealing with a lot of uh, drug and alcohol problems in his personal life at that point and went away to kind of get himself better. And, and it was good for Shawn. But Shawn went away, and essentially Austin was left with the company. They built the company around Steve Austin. The Attitude Era was into full gear at this point. And then you go into that summer, and it's all about Austin McMahon. Vince McMahon takes on the Mr. McMahon character and starts feuding with Stone Cold. And that sends Austin into the stratosphere. His feuds with Bret Hart were great. His feuds with Shawn Michaels were great. But it was his feud with Vince McMahon, the owner of the company, that is why guys like the guy I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast who painted his car to be like Steve Austin, he was the everyday working man, and he was beating up the boss. Which And guys at home could live through Steve Austin. No matter what they told Austin to do, he said, I don't care. He'll give you a stunner. He'll flip you off, and he'll start drinking beer in your face and dumping it on you. And guys at home could not get enough. Steve Austin essentially was what every guy at home wanted to do at some point to a boss or someone who had wronged them. And Austin took off eventually. And I said, today we're talking about the rise, and that's what this is, the rise of Austin. Eventually, he goes on to become the biggest thing ever. 
and he starts feuding with the corporation and eventually does three pay-per-views with The Rock. But eventually Austin started to have personal problems as the years would go by, personal with domestic, with his marriage, um, health problems from that injury from Owen Hart. And he, and he essentially, I think, was burnt out by carrying the company and having so much placed on his shoulders because he took a losing wrestling company and made it bigger than it had ever been before. It was all on the shoulders to Steve Austin. We had never seen anything like that short of Hulk Hogan in the 1980s. And Austin was successful. He was on TV shows. He started getting cast in movies, which he eventually long-term said was not his thing. He wasn't a movie guy. He does podcasts now, kind of like what you're watching, but a lot, a lot better. Um, but Steve had an incredible run. It's sad that it was only as short as it was, and a lot of it had to do with that injury he took at the hands of the Owen Hart match, that he couldn't go longer, like a Ric Flair or an Undertaker. But that's the reality of professional wrestling. So that is the rise of Steve Austin, just an incredible career, an incredible performer, beloved by the country. Um, and that is essentially how he went from a, a mid-carter in WCW to a global phenomenon and really put the WWF on its back and why Vince and why Ric Flair say he was the greatest ever. Um, so that's our look at the, the rise of Steve Austin. I'm sure we'll do more episodes down the road on later on for Austin, maybe his feuds with Rock, um, his, when he turned heel and the fans didn't really like it, and he joined the Alliance after Vince bought out WCW. There's a lot more with Austin. Maybe we'll do another episode on down the road. But this was the rise of Steve, and it was just an incredible thing to watch uh, all these years. So as I said at the top of the podcast, I do want to talk about one other thing, um, and that is the Toontown Turmoil, which is a local independent wrestling show coming April 16th, the Bold City Con in Jacksonville. I want to get their names up. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Austin, but I want to pull up their names. So I interviewed a tag team, the Bold City Beast, Bobby Ledger, and the King of Queens is uh, tag team partner, Dashing Cam. We sat down and talked with them, and this is what they have to say about the big event, Toontown Turmoil of Bold City Con on April 16th. Let's listen. Okay, we're excited to be talking about a large independent event that's going on in Jacksonville on April 16th. It's called Toontown Turmoil at Bold City Con, and we're joined by two wrestlers who will be performing. Bold City Beast, Bobby Ledger, and the King of Queens, Dashing Cam, his partner. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Tell me all about it. What's going on? Oh, you already know who it is. I am, of course, as you said, your Bold City Beast. We are putting on a, a grand card down there at Bold City Con this coming April 16th. We're going to be closing out the convention, so we got to put on a show. The Toontown gotcha. Turmoil will be taking, taking the local and, like I said, state talent and putting it on display for all of Jacksonville to see. Uh, yes, and we're some, we're some homegrown city boys as well. We, we, we reside here in Jacksonville. So we're, yeah. we decided to bring all our friends that we met on the roads to bring them down here to Duval and show them how we do it down here in both on the, at the Bowl City Con as well. Where are you both from in Jacksonville? Tell me about how you started. So actually, um, we're both around the same side of town, the north side of Jacksonville. We got our start at Champ 7 Pro Wrestling under the yep. tutelage of Larry Hamilton, Thunderbolt Larry Hamilton, a local Shut legendary up, former NWA um, champion as well. He molded us and put us through the through the, the, the course of getting our, our fundamentals down, and he 
put in everything that we are today, and we've just kind of been on the road for the past three, three and a half years now, developing our skills and just taking it to the state of Florida. But we wanted so to start a tag team. So you guys are a tag team, or are your tag team that right? Yeah, we are tag team. Yourself, are you? You both look pretty good size. Are you brawlers, or what's your uh, wrestling style? And we get, so for we get me, I am a brawler, almost like a, a, a grappler <laughs> as well. But I, I, I will tell say that the queen is a, a little bit more finesse, and I'm the brute of the of the tag team. He's the brains at times. But as we are kiss it, whether it's Listen. the ring, my fist, or his hand, you will kiss it. So yeah, that's what that's what we that's where we are right now. Yeah, tell me about Scott, I'm, I'm out, I'm out on April sixteenth. About the show on April 16th. So yeah, we have a few matches coming up. Um, of course, right now, myself, I'll be battling the rock and roller Gorgonzola Cheese. Um, we have a grudge match for the Queen himself against Aaron Black, the GPIW champion. He's going to be putting that title on the line. We have other matches such as um, the Suplex Queen versus the Submission Queen, Pot, uh, Persia Pierce versus Tonali. Um, and our yes. main event is three of the biggest names in Florida independent wrestling right now. Cha-Cha Charlie versus DMC versus John Hudson, the Proving Ground champion. And where yes. will it be? So it's going to be in the outside venue for Bold City Con. We're going to be on um, Talleran Avenue. And like I said, once you guys get to the con, the mission to the show is included within your con pass. And if people Scott, want to... You there, right? I'm oh, sorry, no, Scott, we're going to see you there? I'm, I'm working there? to see if I can get time to be there. This looks exciting. So tell me a little about, sure? if people want to know more about it, where would be a good place they could go to like find event details, who's going to be there oh, if they didn't get it all we're here? We're all over social media at Pro Wrestling Bold. That's Pro Wrestling Bold, just like the bold city that we came from. Um, you can find us at PW Bold on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Dashing Cam, what will they get if they go to the show? Why would people want to go to your show? You're, you're looking at it. This, I mean, who wouldn't want to pay how much it is for a Bowl City tickets, about 30 bucks? Who wouldn't pay 30 bucks to see this pretty face? Of course. <laughs> and plus, and plus to, listen, Scott, your rating's going to go through the roof while showing me anyway, so you're welcome, by the way. Uh, well, well, I appreciate it. Gentlemen, yeah, thank but, you so much. Um, so this <laughs> is, uh, once again, Toontown Turmoil. Real quickly before we go, why are they calling it Toontown Turmoil? That was something I didn't understand. So we're going to be in the heart of Toontown, down there, downtown, near the stadium, and we're going to put some of the best people in the ring. And there's going to be a little bit of a turmoil because, hey, when you're having all the, when you're having all this talent, there's always going to be a little something that may go wrong, but it's going to be great <laughs> and entertaining for you guys. Toontown Turmoil, April 16th at Bold City Con at 3 p.m. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. All right. Thank you for having us. Scott, see you there. See you there, Scott. And so thanks to Bold City Beast and King of Queens for joining us. Um, and uh, note to all you independent wrestlers out there, I'm getting your notes uh, that you would like to come on the show. And I want to get as many on as we can. We'd love to talk to you and uh, keep reaching out. Uh, I'm at, at WJXT Scott J on Twitter and at WJXT for Scott Johnson. You can find me there pretty easily. So we appreciate you guys. So that's an April 16th event. So I appreciate you joining us for our look at the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, one of our favorite um, events, uh, our favorite stories in wrestling history to ever happen. We'll see you back here next time on Going Ringside with The Local Station. This has been Going Ringside with The Local Station, brought to you every Wednesday on your favorite podcast player, on News 4 Jax Plus, as well as the News 4 Jax YouTube channel.